please take a seat. We are continuing our series on Called to be Church, and we are talking about Called to be Generous today. So we are going to read something, some passages from 2 Corinthians, and we are reading some verses from chapter 8 and also some verses from chapter 9. I am reading these from the New Living Translation, so you can either look it up in your pews or you can just listen to the the story. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they're also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. And then jumping on to chapter 9. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help, and I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I'm sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready, as I've been telling them, 
and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We'd be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found you weren't ready after all that I told them. Though I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready, but I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others, as the scriptures say. They share freely and give generously to the poor, and their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. Let's just pray as we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts through these words. So many words that give us guidance as to how to give. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will show us the words that you wish each of us to hear and how we can grow in that spirit of generosity. Amen. So firstly, let's just have a look at the context as to what's happening in this passage. Basically, there are three players. There's the recipients of this gift. So they are the church in Jerusalem. So this is a church of Jews, one of the early churches, because obviously that's where, where Jesus started his ministry. But it appears that in this church in Jerusalem, there was actually really quite a lot of poor people. The people that joined the church tended not to be very wealthy. We know from other passages that we've read about the fact that there were lots of widows, there were lots of orphans, and there had been some doubt as to whether they were all getting enough money and they had to appoint people to see to this. So this was not a particularly wealthy church. And then things had got worse. During the reign of the Emperor Claudius, there was a bad famine throughout the land, and the people in Jerusalem were really struggling and short of money. So therefore, that was why Paul was trying to raise this particular collection. Then we've got the church in Macedonia. That's the church that is referred to here in, in chapter 8. The church in Macedonia, that is what we would referred to as modern-day Turkey. They would have referred to it as Asia Minor. And in that area, there were the churches at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea, a group of churches there. Now, 
they had, this is where Paul was at the moment, and Paul had encouraged them, because of the other church in Corinth, to start giving. The church in Macedonia seemed to be also in a time of great suffering, but they had raised together an offering to give to this church in Jerusalem. And then there is this church in Achaia. So this is the church in Greece, which to whom this letter is written in Corinth. Corinth was one of the churches in this area in in Greece. And so we've got three players here. So what points can we actually learn from this passage? Because actually we're finding, first of all, that we're being talked about this about being called to be church. So undoubtedly, Paul is writing and referring to a church in Macedonia, a church in Corinth. So therefore, we can certainly say that this teaching does apply to us as a corporate church. So we could say, how does this teaching apply to Mutley Baptist Church, the church in Plymouth, or the church in the UK, for instance? However, we also know that churches get their money from individuals, and that actually all the teaching, and there's loads of teaching in this passage about how we give, actually also applies to us as individuals. So the main challenge probably for you today as you go listen to this and think about it afterwards in the coming days is what is God saying to you as an individual? And that would then work out in practice in the whole church. Secondly, this is referring to what we would call a free will offering. So this is a bit like that's the harvest appeal that we had a few weeks ago, help BMS with a particular appeal that's happening somewhere else, or there's suddenly been a tsunami in the Philippines, and we're asked as Christians here to send money to help the church in the Philippines where all their homes and so on have been, have been destroyed. So this is not teaching that is particularly relating to tithes. So ties would have been, traditionally we talk about, say, 10%. The Jews certainly had always been taught to give the first fruits of all their labors to God. And indeed, that money went to the church to pay for the Levites, the priests, and the upkeep of the temple, and so on. And most of the churches probably also were continuing in giving their tithe either to the temple or to their community of, of Christians. So Paul is not talking about ties in this particular passage. He's particularly talking about a free will offering, a big collection that is being given to help other Christians in another part of the world. Now, it would be wrong for me just to ignore the fact that in these passages, there is a fair bit of emotional pressure from um, from Paul. He is kind of playing one off against the other, isn't he? So I think that while there's lots of great teaching, and Paul does give great teaching, it does come in the context of slightly playing one off against the other. We do know that because we're corporate, that actually we are influenced by what other people do. We do find it so much easier to give when it's a big appeal on the TV and we're seeing loads of things in the news and we know that everybody else is giving and it seems the right kind of thing to do. And conversely, if we feel that nobody else is giving, then actually 
often we feel less inclined to give as well. There's, there's a buzz that comes, isn't there, when we all feel we're actually getting somewhere, we're getting closer to, um, to getting to this target that we're particularly looking at. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that actually the buzz in giving, probably in our country, is actually dropping. I read something just yesterday in BBC News, and it is an article. An analysis of charity donations on self-assessment tax forms has led the Times to conclude that the richest Britons are failing to do their bit for those who are less fortunate. The paper found that nearly two-thirds of people earning more than £250,000 gave nothing to good causes last year. And reports that the average donation made by those high earners is only 1.7% of their income, compared with 3.1% by people who earn less than £50,000. Campaigners have told the Times the figures underline why Britain needs a revolution in philanthropic giving. So in our society, it's not actually considered the in thing to, to give. And that creeps into the church as well, doesn't it? I have a phrase here, which I think is the one which sums up all of this main point that I'd like you to remember today. This phrase is, God does not count the pennies, he measures the heart. Now, I'm sorry for Beth, who's obviously been doing quite a lot of work this week in counting pennies, and this morning she was telling us how many pennies she'd actually counted. But I'm afraid from this passage, the real message is that God doesn't count pennies, and he measures the heart. So let's just have a look at counting pennies. How does that actually work? Rules and regulations and the ought to factor. Now, maybe slightly the tithe thing comes into this as well, isn't it? You know, that actually I've got to give or we're having this appeal. I've, I really ought to do it. Oh, I haven't done it yet. Oh, dear. I really need to get something and, and give it. Or we're actually concerned. Maybe somebody might turn to us and say, well, how much have you given? Oh, yes, I, I really must get round to that. I, I really ought to do it. And it can become very, very easy for us to get tied into the things that we ought to do and actually to be giving, therefore, fairly grudgingly. And this is one of the things that Paul says that actually doesn't please God. So it may be that we're feeling pushed into it and we're doing it grudgingly, or it may be in the same ought factor that actually when we do it, we start to feel really quite full of pride. Oh, actually, I've done it. You know, I'm one of these people who earns, I'm not, over £250,000, and I've given a substantial gift to charity. Maybe actually we can start to feel a little proud about it. Maybe even as churches, we can start to feel proud about our giving. We have a big building appeal. We managed to raise all this money that we needed. Or actually, I go to a church where we give away 40% of our budget to mission every year. Do sometimes we act as, does that fill into the actual, the rules and regulations factor? Or secondly, there's this casual response, the impulse factor. The bag passes, oh, what coins have I got? 
Ah, oh, I've got a few things. I'll stick them in. Or there's the poor person, the homeless person standing in the street. Oh, I'll give them something. And you go away and you think, I've done it. I've given something to that person. You maybe start to feel a bit proud. But actually, you haven't really considered it. You haven't actually thought about the person's needs, what they're going to do. And indeed, by the next day, you could be fairly sure that actually you have forgotten all about it. There is a story in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And in that, King David has decided that he wants to count all his troops Probably seems a reasonable thing for a, a king to do. I need to know how many people are in my army. I need to know if I've got any chance of winning the next battle. However, God had particularly told him that he must not count his troops. But on he went and did it. Whenever he got the number back, he was suddenly struck over with guilt. And he realized that he had disobeyed God. So he wanted to repent. He wanted to make it right. So he decides that he's going to build an altar and sacrifice, as they did in those days, to say to God, I'm sorry, I've disobeyed you. So he finds a nice site for this altar, and it belongs to somebody called Arana. And Arana says to King David, that's fine, yeah, of course you have that site. That's absolutely fine by me. And I can give you some um, cows and sheep and there you can have, have, do your sacrifice there and you can get things all right with your God. And David says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You know, sometimes do we actually, maybe in our casualness, are we actually looking to give things that actually cost us nothing? Actually, yeah, we can set aside that and you can have that and actually it doesn't change my lifestyle or how I do, do anything at all. It's had very little cost. The same can apply to the church as applies to an individual. Bill Hybels tells a story of being in Africa. I think he was probably there to do a GLS conference. And the conference had all finished, and he was about to get back in his plane, back to the States. And the, the pastor of the church that was hosting it said, could you come round to my house for a meal? We'd really love to share a meal, you with, with my, my family. And Bill Hybels says, yes, I, I'd love to come round for a meal. So he goes, and there's, it's quite a large family, and there's about six children or so, and the, the parents, and probably some grandparents and so on, they're all sitting down. Bill gets served his food first, and he gets given a plate that has a nice piece of chicken and some vegetables. And then the food comes out for the other people, the children, they get some rice and some vegetables, and the next plate comes out, rice and vegetables, and the next plate, rice and vegetables. And he's thinking, do you think they don't like chicken? And he thinks it'd be a bit rude maybe to, maybe I'm actually slightly offending them. Maybe, maybe they're all vegetarians. But he decided to, to say nothing and went on and ate his, his whole meal. They were obviously delighted to have them with him in, in their house. And he's then in the car going to the airport and his chauffeur 
driving them there, not the, the minister. So he says to the chauffeur, that, that pastor and his family, how often would somebody on his kind of income, that kind of family, how often would they expect to eat meat? And the chauffeur said, oh, not very often at all. He says, what, once a week? No, 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 no. They can probably manage a small chicken two times in a year. And Bill Hybels felt really, really guilty. Here's he coming from America. I'm quite sure that he had probably had meat in his diet every single day of the week and probably at large quantities, knowing Americans. And he had used up that family's meat portion for a full six months. He was really humbled by that because actually they were giving something to him, showing great honor to him by giving something that hugely cost every single person in that family. When we're giving, does it cost us? So, measuring the heart. The Macedonians, we hear in this passage that the Macedonians had really had a lot of suffering. There had probably been lots of persecution for them. They had gone through really, really hard times. And yet, those Macedonians understood what Jesus had done for them. They understood how Jesus had left his kingly throne and come to earth and lived like them. They understood that he had given up his life in order to save them. And these Macedonians, although they had suffered greatly, they were full of great, overwhelming generosity in thankfulness for what God had done for them. They were filled with abundant joy. They were so keen to give away to other people because they understood what God had done for them. Jesus talked similarly about the heart when he told us the story of the the widow's mite. While we had that the Pharisee put his money in, loads of noise, you know, again, look at me, how much I'm giving. And then the widow who comes across and puts in the tiniest coin. And Jesus says, Mark chapter 12, that actually her gift is the one that pleases God because she gave so much, her all, out of what little that she actually has. And then we have another story about the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. Now, there's maybe two different instances of this. There's one instance, which is in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And while at a meal, a lady comes along And she wipes and starts cleaning Jesus' feet and pours an expensive ointment perfume over Jesus' feet. And the the, the host says to Jesus, do you realize the kind of woman and what she's doing? And so Jesus tells a parable. And he tells a parable that says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 
Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. And then he says to Simon, you kind of ignored me, but this woman, she has taken her time, her effort, and she has poured out all her love because her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Another instance of a, maybe, a, maybe the same occasion, maybe a different one, where Judas says, but what a waste. Couldn't we have done actually something far more with the money from this perfume than pour it over your feet? Maybe you are somebody, maybe a bit like me, who tends to always be thinking, actually, is that the best use of the thing? Is that how we would do it? Actually, we have a God who is abundant, who's extravagant in his giving. And maybe sometimes we're so busy thinking of, is that the best use? That Actually, we've just lost that extravagance that God gives. That actually our generosity is about God's love coming and flowing us, as we saw at the Macedonians, and then just flowing straight out to other people. We do like stories of generosity, The secret millionaire ran for six years over 10 series. A millionaire goes incognito into a place and maybe they were encouraged by a TV camera. Who knows? But they were then getting involved with the people, seeing what their real need was and then giving something towards that project. And many of these millionaires continued to have a relationship with that particular group of people that they'd got involved with. You know, maybe actually part of our lack of generosity is the fact that it's just so much at arm's length. We just, we don't know the people that are actually to benefit from. We don't really understand who they are, what's in their heart, and how we can actually help them. We just kind of make this meaningless kind of gift for them. We're not just talking about money here, though. When we get to generosity, generosity of our time, generosity of our possessions, our houses, our cars, all of these things that God has given to us, are we overflowing out of gratefulness to God for all that he's given out to other people? Are we the kind of people that when it gets to Christmas, yeah, we're delighted to give presents to other people. We're delighted to see them open them and the joy in their face. Or are we actually sitting there thinking, I wonder if they've got me the thing that I particularly want. Maybe you are somebody who finds giving easy. But maybe you're somebody who actually finds giving actually quite a challenge and something that we need to grow in. So how can we manage to grow in our generosity? Firstly, I think we need to spend time in prayer. Because as we spend time in prayer, we're looking, maybe we're getting together a list of all the things that God has given to us, all the things that we can say thanks for, counting our blessings. And as we do all that in prayer, then we're starting to say, 
And actually, God, you've given me so much. I'm just a steward of what you've given to me. How am I going to use that for other people? And you talk in prayer all about these things. As we pray for God's love to flow through us, that it will go out to others. Fasting as a discipline is a way that can actually help us grow our generosity. Because fasting is the thing that attacks our greed. You know, the fact that says, I'm really hungry, I must have something to eat. I need another chocolate biscuit, I need a bit more sugar. Um, My stomach's grumbling, I really have to have something. Fasting is we start to deny those kind of needs for our physical appetites can actually start to put a check on some of the greed that we have in our lives. It actually says, everything I earn, everything I have is mine. And I keep what I need for me, and then I can give what's left over. But when we start realizing that God is the one who gives everything to us, and that we don't need to rely on bread alone, but from God, then actually we start to be able to free up being able to, to give to others. And then maybe we can just actually practice giving. There was some kind of campaign a a while ago, I don't know if it still exists, where it was do a random act of kindness to somebody every Friday, secretly. So you had to find, just think of, you know, going to do something nice, outgoing for, for other people. Just increase that sense of happiness in our world. But maybe also it's a way that we can start as Christians. We just start giving. Just start to give that bit more. As I said, this isn't particularly about the tithe, but that would be the 10%. So the government, so the Bible is really teaching that it's giving more and more and more. It's so that what we keep to ourselves actually becomes less and less and less. So I thought we'd just finish by listening to Francis Chan, and he's got a few minutes to talk to us on giving, I hope.